take your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. We had that just remembrance of 9-11. Today is the 21st anniversary of the attack on the World Trade Center and on the, on the Pentagon. Our previous president, President George Bush, who was president at the time, mentioned that we were targeted for attack. And I don't know about you, it feels more and more as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, who love God and just want to serve Him. We are more and more targeted for attack in our society. I was just skimming the headlines of the news, as I often do, and one of the articles was one of those advice columns, and the question was, what do I do if my next-door neighbors are evangelical Christians and their daughter wants to play with my daughter? I didn't know that was a problem. Did you? But some people see evangelical Christians as some sort of you know, mysterious group of people that might be trying to brainwash your kids. I mean, I, we'll tell your kids the truth, but I, I don't know. It used to be the opposite. You wanted your neighbors to be Christians, right? But we're told that they... There always comes a point, if we allow our human thinking just to go its own way, there comes a point when evil is called good, and good is called evil. And it, we've reached that point. Uh, people don't know what a family is. People don't know what men are and what women are. People don't know whether life is disposable or whether it's valuable. We just seem to be totally in the dark about many of these things. And I want to encourage us because the answer is not more of us. The answer is that we need more of God. I just want to remind us, it is never too dark, but the light cannot break through. It's never so bad that God has to just throw up his hands and say, well, there's nothing I can do about this. And we're going to continue to look to God to break through. We're going to continue to look to God to intervene in four ways. Number first of all, never forget this. We're looking for God to break through in our personal lives. I need more of God. Not I need more of God like God's withholding something from me. But you know what we do is, as human beings, we say, God, I've got this one. Right? I don't need you for this part. We need God for every part of our lives. So number one, when I say we need more of God, I'm talking about me personally, you personally, desiring to be ever closer to God. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found, was the text from this morning's chapter. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and turn unto me. That's God's call to us as individuals. But secondly, seeking the Lord for our families. And that includes, obviously, our children, but as was appropriately mentioned, our grandchildren, aunts and uncles, parents. Seeking the Lord for our families, for our family members. Third, seeking the Lord for our community. What, what Vacaville needs, what this little community of Elmira needs more than anything is for God to pour out his spirit afresh, pour out his spirit anew and, and change people's hearts from the, uh, change people's lives from the inside, from their hearts out. And then for our nation, praying for our nation, praying for our leaders, of course, political leaders but also for, for other Christians to stand for righteousness in our community. Over the next few Sunday mornings, I plan to start a series talking about some devotional disciplines, some habits of righteousness that we're going to build into our lives so that God can use us 
But tonight we're going to focus on the most important part of that, and that is that God can use us. When I talk about devotional disciplines, I'm not talking about you becoming super Christian and you get to wear a cape, you know, and you get to fly around. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about clearing the self out of your life so that God can use more of you. It's always going to, the power is always of God. It's never of me. I never become a better Christian than you. No, 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 no. I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. We both have equal access to the grace of God, the power of God, the Holy Spirit on our lives to change who we are and to give us boldness to witness. And that's one of the issues we're going to be dealing with as we talk about these devotional disciplines. But the power is of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm going to read to you verses 5, 6, and 7. Follow along as I read 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, verses 5, 6, and 7. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Christ's sake, or for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. I'm going to keep reading because notice the situation that Paul finds himself in. Verse 8, we are troubled on every side. Boy, I feel that sometimes, troubled on every side. Paul says, yet not distressed. We are perplexed. We don't know what to do. Perplexed is, boy, boy, I can see the problem, but what do I do with this problem? We're perplexed, he says, but not in despair. Persecuted. Again, we're going to talk about that tonight. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Paul is not living in easy times. He's not preaching about when everything's going well. He's talking about times when it's bad, when people are being killed, being thrown in prison because they are Christians. For nothing less than saying, I believe Jesus is Lord. Okay, that's it. You go to the, you go to the lions and, and get thrown into the, uh, to the lions. What's going on in Paul's day? He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Let's pray and let's consider four points about these verses. Father, thank you for this evening. And as Billy mentioned, uh, we wish more people could join us in person tonight. But we understand uh, that illness has kept them away. And we pray that as they follow along uh, virtually, that you would uh, cause the technology to work so that it's not a distraction to them or to us. More importantly, Lord, we want your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, whether we're here in person or whether we're watching this or listening to this online. We want your Holy Spirit to transform us. We want your light to shine into our hearts. We want to have your treasure in our earthen vessel. So we pray for your help. We ask that you would use this message to strengthen us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with the, I've got a couple questions tonight that I'm hoping will help you follow the text, which is, is primarily focused on verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Here's my first question, non-rhetorical. I'm looking for one of you to answer. What is this treasure that Paul refers to? Salvation? think you're close. I think the text uh, verses 5 and 6 narrow it down a little bit more than even that. Jesus Christ is that treasure. 
Notice in verse 5, we preach not ourselves but Christ Jesus. And then to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure, Jesus Christ. Hold your place in 2 Corinthians 4 and turn over to Colossians chapter 1. I want you to see a similar topic that he talks about, Colossians 1. By the way, Scotty, Lord willing, will be back next week to teach his Sunday school lesson on Colossians. He's not reached Colossians 1-7 yet. And I encourage all of you, to, if you're not already involved in a different Sunday school class, to be here for his series on Colossians chapter 1. Uh, Colossians. He's still in Colossians 1. He's going to reach Colossians 1.27. I'm looking forward to that. This is one of my, one of the passages I, I've, I've mentioned before. It's hard for me to say I have a life verse because in different seasons of life, different verses have, have really been a guidepost for me. They've been a, a buoy on the water. You're driving your boat and it shows you where to go, where there's just an expanse of water. They've been a buoy on the water for me. And this verse was one of those. To whom God, this is Colossians 1.27, to whom God, would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, Christ in you. The treasure is Jesus Christ. Now, let's just dwell on that a minute. Jesus Christ is God's son. What could be more valuable than that? Let's imagine somebody offered you all the gold in San Francisco. I'll take Jesus Christ, right? All the gold, wherever, <laughs> I'll take Jesus Christ. Money does not matter in eternity. The streets are going to be paved with gold in eternity. But Jesus Christ is going to be the light of that eternity. And that's who's in us. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. And what's neat about this treasure that you can pass along to somebody else as much of this treasure as you want and not lose any of it for yourself. Now, I don't know what Billy's experience was, but I remember being at college and family and friends would send me care packages. Did they ever send you care packages, Billy? And it seemed as if the people who lived on your floor of the dorm had a secret radar to know when you had received a care package. And as you would open up that care package and wonderful smells, cookies and other treats would come up out of that care package, all of a sudden your room would be invaded with people. And they all felt like they, you owed them a small piece of that care package. And you'd dill out a little bit here and a cookie there, and pretty soon you don't have half the care package left. But our treasure is not like that, where if I give you some, that's less for me. I can give the hope of Jesus Christ to anybody and everybody and still have just as much treasure for me. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. But who or what are the earthen vessels? That's my second question. Who or what are the earthen vessels? That's right, Christina, we are. I'm the earthen vessel. You're the earthen vessel. Now, I'm sorry that this is so small. It's basically the only earthen vessel that I have at my home. Earthen vessel, you might translate it as clay vessels, clay jars, clay pots. This happens to be a little, little um, lamp. I understand it's a replica of what they would have made in the first century, Jesus' time, in order to be a, a candle. And you'd have a little wick at this end. You'd pour the oil 
pour the oil into the middle, have a little wick at this end, and the oil would come up the wick and burn to provide a little bit of light. But the importance of this is not that it's a candle. It's that it's made out of clay. It's just earth. It's, it's not particularly valuable, number one. It's, it's easily replaceable, especially in Jesus' time. To find one of these would have been nothing. I mean, they were all over. They were cheap. They were, everybody sold them, right? And it's easily broken. If I drop this, even on this carpeted floor, this is likely to break into several pieces. Now, that wouldn't be true if you had a vessel made out of metal, for example. You had a pot made out of brass. You could drop that from a six feet, seven feet, and it, it might dent, but it's probably not going to break. You might even have a, a, a wood, something, a wood vessel that had been shaped on a lathe, spun and, and using uh, sharp instruments to, to cut into that wood. You have a wooden vessel, you could drop it from five or six feet, and it probably wouldn't even dent, just bounce. But you drop this from five or six feet, it's going to break. We are that earthen vessel. We're dispensable. We're, we're not particular. I mean, we're valuable to God. Don't get me wrong. But there are, what, seven and a half billion of us. It's not like it's hard to find these earthen vessels. They're everywhere. It's like, it's like a plastic baggie today. How many of you wash out and save your plastic baggies after you use them? Why not? Because you're going to go down to the store and buy a hundred pack. You do. Okay, Miss Sheila. Somebody pray for Miss Sheila. You put a clothespin on? Yes. Yes, we actually saved our plastic baggies when we were in Mongolia because you couldn't always find them. And they were so useful that we'd wash them out. Some things couldn't wash out of them well. But if you just put a sandwich in them, for example, we'd wash it out and stick it on a on a, on a clothespin and let it dry. and Yeah, that's true. You can do that. But most of the time, we just throw those baggies away because they're everywhere. That's the idea of an earthen vessel. It's everywhere. There's hundreds of them. They're weak and they're easily broken. So if that's true, if these are expendable, easily broken, not particularly valuable in that there are so many of them, I'm not diminishing the value of human life, but just, just so many of them, why is it that God chooses to put his treasure in this earthen vessel? The text tells us, look at the verse again. Why is it that God chooses to put his treasure, Jesus Christ, his son, inside of us when we're just earthen vessels? Why does he do that? Yes, you're right. Think another step. Why does he do that? The verse tells us. That the excellency of the power may be of and not of us. You see, God wants the glory. If he made us big and strong and powerful, I, I, boy, we'd say, look, look what I did. <laughs> well, I'm, really, I'm a really good Christian. Look at me. That, that's not what God wants at all. And we're going to talk later, Well, so let me not get ahead of myself. That's not what God wants at all. So he chooses, God chooses to put his incredible power, his invaluable power, power beyond what we can understand or estimate or, or put a price on. He chooses to put that power inside of us. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Now that word excellency, it's, it's a good translation, but it's a hard word to translate. I'll tell you the English word we get from the Greek word that's behind excellency 
And that's the English word hyperbole. Hyperbole. Anyone know in, in English grammar what, what we mean when we say hyperbole? Exaggeration for effect. It's not, you're not trying to lie, but you're, you're making something bigger so that people realize, boy, this is, this is, this is a big deal. Hyperbole. Hyperbole, and we'll use the NFL because I just mentioned that. Hyperbole is the quarterback who can throw a football 100 yards through the middle of a tire. That's hyperbole. Hyperbole is the chef who comes into your kitchen, not bringing any of his own supplies, not bringing any of his own dishes. He comes into your kitchen and he makes a gourmet meal with tastes that you have never experienced before in your life. And you think to yourself, how can he do this? With the same materials and the same kitchen and the same utensils that I have, how can he do this? It's beyond us. Hyperbole. It's the Olympic gymnast who wins not one event or two events, but wins all the events. How can this happen? It's, it's, it's so excellency. The idea is it's just beyond. It's not just understandable. It's beyond our understanding. The excellency of the power. The amazing power that God has for us is not of us. It is of God. So what, what general term do we use for this power of God that flows into us and through us, changing who we are and bringing glory to God? There's a single New Testament word that we often use to talk about this power of God in our life. Grace. God's grace. That power, that grace God has for us is always available. Have you thought about that? It's always available. Now, I'll be frank. There are times when I'm going through life and things are coming at me. I, I, I describe it this way. It feels as if uh, you're in a batting cage and somebody turned on the pitching machine so it just keeps shooting balls at you. And as fast as you swing, you can't hit them all. Maybe you've been in, life has felt like that to you. Or it feels like you're on I-80 and you're riding a bicycle and everyone else is going by on 80 miles an hour. And you think, how can I keep up? And I know when I feel like that, sometimes I, I think, God, where is your grace for this? Is the problem that God's grace has been depleted or, or, or taken away by someone else? No. God's grace is the same all the time. It's always available. It's always sufficient. No matter how overwhelmed by life we may feel, God's grace, it's always plenty of God's grace. So when I lack God's grace, when life seems to be coming at me so fast that I can't even deal with it, and I lack joy, and I lack peace, and I lack long-suffering, when I just get frustrated and, and out of my head, what's the problem? Go ahead, say it. Make fun of me. What's the problem? Yes, what's the problem? Yeah, whose sin? My sin, you're right. It's me, I'm the problem. We don't like to talk that way, do we? We'd rather blame Billy. No, it's Billy's fault. I, I, I love blaming my kids. My wife will tell you, I love blaming my kids. 
I, I sort of don't know what to do anymore because I only have one at home and she's actually really well behaved now. I can't blame her anymore. You know, nobody believes her. it's Elsie's fault. It's not Elsie's fault. The problem is me. When I lack grace, the problem is me. You ever been uh, stopped at a red light and somehow you bumped your shifter into neutral and the light turns green and you push on the gas and what happens? Nothing. Engine rev. What in the world? What happened to my car? Nothing happened to your car. You put it in neutral. There's plenty of power there, but the transmission has got to get it to the back wheels or the front wheels. Yeah, it's mostly front wheel drive now. In order for that car to move forward, God's power is constant. The excellency of the power that God has never changes. There wasn't more of it 50 years ago. There wasn't more of it during Jesus' day. There wasn't more of it during Elijah and Elisha's time. There wasn't more of it when Moses was around. God's power is the same today as it always has been. The problem is me. The problem is us. We're not, we're these earthen vessels and we're saying, God, God, it's okay. Just go ahead and put the lid on there. I don't need your power right now. That's not true. I need God's power. Now, there's many reasons, and uh, 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 Hattie is right. Sin is, is a good general term for it. But I want to focus on one particular sin that prevents us from experiencing the excellency of this power, and that is pride. If we're going to experience the power of God, the excellency of the power in our lives, we have got to be humble. The Bible says in at least three places that I'm aware of, God resists the, this thought, it isn't word for word, but God resists the proud and gives grace, his power to the humble. The humble. Now, there's a false humility where we say, oh, we talk bad about ourselves but we're really hoping someone's going to come along and say, no, 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 that's not true about you. When I was in Mongolia, I was struggling to learn the language, and I had a teacher who was particularly difficult on me. Uh, he wanted me to learn Mongolian poetry, and I didn't get why, uh, but he thought that was really important. And so I said to him one time, I said, you know, my, I'm just not very good at this language. And I was hoping he was going to say, no, no, you're actually doing fine. You're actually making progress. He said, no, you're right. You're, you're not good at this language at all. That didn't help me. That's just a false humility. God doesn't want us walking around, I'm just no good. I just can't do anything right. God can't ever use me. That's not, that's not humility. Maybe that's self-pity. Maybe it's, I don't know what it is, but it's, that's not what God wants. I'm going to give you three, excuse me, four, four words that I want you to associate with humility. The first word is honesty. Humility is honesty. Honesty with myself and honesty with God. Now, God knows the truth, doesn't he? God knows exactly who I am. God knows what I think about. God knows my attitude. God certainly sees my behaviors. He knows everything about There's nothing I can hide from God. But have you ever tried? Tried to make excuses for why, you know, God, you have to understand, you know, this is the way I am. I had a really rough childhood. Rough childhood, yeah, I understand that, but does God give us, a, give us grace for that? I didn't have a rough childhood, by the way, but I'm just saying. Some people have. Does God give us grace for that? He does. Children, spouse, you know, it's my family. God knows all about your family. It's my circumstances. You don't know, God, how wicked this world is. God knows how wicked this world is. We need to be honest with God. 
and admit that it's us. Me. I, 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 the biggest, single biggest problem in my life is me. And God says, I'm merciful. I'll forgive you. Just, just tell me. Tell me about it. That's what confession is. Confession is agreeing with God that I'm wrong and he's right about sin. We need to be honest with God about who we are. The second word that I want you to associate with humility is dependence. Humility is honesty, and humility is dependence. We are constantly dependent on God for that grace that we need to respond to life. Again, the reason I'm preaching this one first is if you have experienced some maturity in your Christian life, you recognize that by developing certain uh, habits of righteousness, you know, there's just some right responses that become associated with your life and you become a person of integrity. And sometimes we think that's us. Yeah, see, I've become a good Christian. It's never been us. It's never been us. It's always been God's grace transforming us, making us like Jesus Christ. We're dependent upon him all the time. And boy, I've seen this. I've seen this. person gets to a certain spiritual maturity where they start to think, yeah, I'm a pretty good Christian. I can do this. I don't need God's help. And that's pride. And what does God do for the proud? He resists them. And they end up in some sin. And you say, how could, they were such a good Christian. How could that happen? They forgot they were dependent on God and started to think that they were a pretty good Christian. Now, I hope that you are growing in your Christian life. I hope that you are maturing and, and keep maturing. But it will never be because of me that I'm a good Christian. It will never be because of you that you're a good Christian. We are constantly dependent on God. So the first word I want you to associate with humility is honesty. The second, dependence. We depend on God. Here's a third one, submission. Now, what's the difference between dependence and submission? What's the difference between I'm dependent upon God and I'm submitted to God? Just sort of in general. Don't overthink this. Yes, Matt? Yep. <laughs> you're, you're headed down the right track. Uh, but a step before what Matt just said, and he's right. The step before Matt, what Matt just said, think of a baby. Is a baby dependent upon his, her mother? Yeah, all the time. Whether the baby realizes it or not, the baby is dependent upon its mother. Is the baby submitted to its mother all the time? I don't even know the babies understand submission. Right. You see, dependence is passive. I don't do anything. I'm just dependent. It's, it's a state of being. I'm just the way I am. Submission requires some active participation. Now, whether I believe it or not, I am dependent upon God. So that, that's, just a, that's just a constant. Whether I'm submitted or not really is up to me. Whether I'm dependent or not is not up to me. It's like a baby with its mother. If, if, if little Anna says, you know, I don't need you, Mom. I, I mean, what, is, what does Anna do? Run away from home? She doesn't even understand that concept. She's just dependent. But submitted is something different. Submitted is when I agree to do it God's way, even though, and this is what Matt said, I don't understand. Now, this is really key because when I understand what God is doing and I agree that what he's doing is right, does it require any submission to obey him? Not really. I mean, growing up, I remember times my parents would say, hey, 
uh, Scott, I need you to unload the dishwasher. Well, I didn't have anything better to do anyway. And I, I, I enjoy eating, and those dishes were mostly, you know, many of them were my dirty dishes. So, okay, I'll, I'll unload the dishwasher. That's not submission. I was ready to unload the dishwasher. Submission is when I'm getting ready to head out the door and play football with my friends, and my mom says, okay, it's time to unload the dishwasher. I want to go out the door, and I've got to decide whether I'm going to do what I want to do or whether I'm going to submit and do what my mom wants me to do. And the same is true with God. You know, God tells me to love my wife, and there's times I really love my wife. It's almost easy, right? That's not submission. The submission comes in when it's hard to love my wife. By the way, it's not because she's hard to love. It's because I'm a sinner. And I have to decide whether I'm going to obey God or whether I'm going to do things naturally, what I feel like doing. There's, there's a huge emphasis in our society, and, and please be careful of this. Follow your heart, they say. No, 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 don't follow your heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Following your own heart is a recipe for disaster. So when it comes to submission, I, I, again, when God and I agree, that's, that, that is submission. Don't, mi- don't misunderstand, but that's easy submission. We've got to be, to be truly humble, we've got to submit even when we don't understand, when we don't get it. But we know it's clear this is what God wants me to do. Okay, I'm, I'm going to follow through. Submission is, is active. It's obedience to a command, even if you don't understand the, why, the reason for the command, and, or if you don't like the command. That's what submission is. So the first word to associate with humility. What's the first word? Honesty. What's the second word? Dependence. The third word? Submission. Here's the fourth word. Perseverance. Now, why perseverance? Well, let's just sort of think through this a little bit. Let's imagine that, you know, I I start out, I'm honest with God. Hey, God, I I need your help. I'm not not good enough. I'm I'm never going to be good enough. I'm I'm dependent upon you. Great. That's fine. And uh, God says, okay, I want you to do this. I said, well, that's, that's hard. I don't really want to do that. That doesn't appeal to me. That isn't what I feel like doing. God says, no, no, I need you to do it. And so I do it. I submit and I say, okay, I'm going to do it. I do it. And I do it for a week and nothing changes. How do you feel when you've obeyed God for a, you know, relatively short duration of time and you're not seeing any difference in your circumstances? You're not even seeing any difference in yourself. What's the temptation there? Give up. Why do we want to give up? Because it's not working, right? I don't know about you. I'm a pragmatist. Does it work? If it's not working, why keep doing it? Do you ever feel like you're just banging your head against the wall with God's will? You know, bang, bang. I felt that way a lot in Mongolia. My wife will tell you. (laughs) You do exactly what God leads you to do, and you do it with with energy and effort, and a month later, nothing's changed. Sometimes two months later, nothing's changed. Now, again, we talked about this brief or or focus on this this morning. As Americans, we tend to be in too much of a hurry. We like microwave Christianity, right? Stick it in the microwave, turn it on 30 seconds, and if it's not hot, what is it doing in there? Sometimes it'll take a lifetime. In fact, let's be frank. Sometimes the investments you make in God's righteousness and in God's kingdom you won't see the results until you get to eternity. That's where faith comes in. What does Hebrews tell us? These all died in faith, 
not having received the promises, but being persuaded. And I don't know what the rest of the verse is. Being persuaded that God was going to be faithful. They didn't see it with their own eyes, but they knew that it was worth giving their life for. Easy example from the scriptures, Abraham. When Abraham died, had his descendants inherited the promised land? In fact, when Abraham died, how many descendants did he have? Best I can tell, maybe three. He had Isaac at about age 100, and Isaac had two sons at age 60, Jacob and Esau. That was when Abraham was 160, that Isaac's two sons were born. And then, does anyone recall a little bit of trivia? How old was Abraham when he died? 175, so 15 years after Esau and Jacob were born, Abraham died. Now, do you think Esau and Jacob had their children by the age of 15? No. So when Abraham died, he's got three descendants. Not very promising. When God said your descendants are going to be like the stars of heaven. The only little piece of property that Abraham had in that promised land was the uh, tomb, the cave that he bought where he could bury Sarah. Not very promising. But now, with historical hindsight, did God fulfill his promise to Abraham? Yes. His descendants became millions. They came back into the promised land. They conquered the promised land. And I'm convinced that God's promises in the Old Testament are also for the future, that Abraham's uh, uh, literal descendants, biologic descendants, will one day again control that promised land in the millennial kingdom. But here's my point. It didn't look like it when Abraham died. And are there going to be things that you just keep trying and keep trying and keep trying because God's led you to do them? I'm not talking about just being hard-headed. Some of us are just hard-headed. Trying and trying and trying because God's led you to do them and trying and trying. And it appears that there are no results in your lifetime. Will there be things like that? Yes. That's where faith comes in. Faith is believing that God is going to fulfill his promises. May not be in my lifetime. That's okay. It wasn't in Abraham's lifetime. That's why I say humility is perseverance. The, humility, the humble person perseveres because it's not about me. I'll be frank. This is my problem. I say, God, look, look at all the effort I put into this. I've tried so hard and nothing is happening. You know what that does? It makes the obedience about me. I have put up in so much effort. I have waited so long. God, two years, 10 years, 20, I've waited so long for this and I still don't have it. What is that about? That's about me. And humility isn't about me. Humility is about God. And if God says, hey, just keep persevering, keep running the race, keep being faithful, the humble person says, great, I'm happy. If God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, when I get to heaven, I'm happy. So I'm just going to keep running this race. Where's the finish line, Lord? It's around a couple more corners. Just keep going. Uh, Kurt understands this idea. You, you drive through, uh, through the uh, mountains, Siskiyou Mountains, to get from here into Oregon, and then he goes on into Washington. But it seems like you're going to be in the mountains forever. 
hour after hour, curve after curve, up and down and around. And life is much like that. You know, you go up and then you get, and there's more mountains over there. Go around the curve and there's another curve. And if you're not humble, if you're proud, you know, you say, forget it. God, I, I don't understand what you're doing, and I don't, I've tried for long enough, and I've tried for hard enough, and I'm, forget it. That's not humility. That's why I say humility is perseverance. You're humble enough to say, I don't need to understand. I don't need to know everything. I just need to trust God. That's humility. So the four words that we're going to remember when we think about humility are, number one, honesty. Number two, dependence. Number three. Submission. And number four, perseverance. We're going to just keep doing what God calls us to do. Now, there's a fifth word here that combines all those others. Because I've observed that humility always expresses itself in prayer, doesn't it? When I'm truly humble, I don't run into my day and say, hey, I've got this. Woo! All right, bring it on. No, I look at my day and I say, if God doesn't help me, I'm not going to make it through this day. So I go to him and I say, hey, I, I got to pray about this. Number one, I got to be honest with you, God. I don't have strength for this day. Now, I've been in seasons of life where I thought I had strength for the day. Hear me there. I thought I had strength for the day. I don't need to pray. <laughs> this is going to be an easy day. How well do you think those days go for me? Not very well. And I've had other days where I'm looking at it and I think, and I say to my wife sometimes, you know, I think I'll stay in bed today. It can't be any worse than going out and facing my day. And you know what? If I go to God and I say, God, let me be honest, I need your help today. Guess what he does for me? He helps me. Of course he helps me. And those are some of the sweetest days to see victory after victory after victory so that the excellency of the power is not of us, but is of God. So prayer is honest. Prayer expresses its dependence. God, I need you today. Prayer expresses its submission. God, I see what your will is for my life. I see this is what you want me to do. I agree. That's right. I'm going to do it. I may not understand why. I may not see what the results are, but I'm going to be submitted. I'm going to do it. And then prayer, of course, is persevering prayer. Some of you have prayed for a particular a promise in God's word for years, maybe even decades. And you've not seen it fulfilled yet. I encourage you, keep praying. Keep praying. You say, yeah, but pastor, I'm wondering if this is really what God wants me to pray. Well, talk to God about it. That's fine. Uh, sometimes I've been praying the wrong thing, and that's why I don't get my prayers answered. And I, I, what I need to do is align my will with God's will. That's true. But sometimes your will's aligned with God's will. God just keeps a different calendar than we keep. God isn't always looking at his watch. He, he knows what he's doing. He's got a plan. He's got it worked out into eternity. We just have to trust him. So as I wrap this up, let me ask this question. This is a rhetorical question. I don't need you to answer this out loud. But are you tired of the flesh winning in your life? I'll tell you why the flesh wins in my life. 
I know God says, be careful for nothing, and yet I'm still filled with worry sometimes. You know why that is? Because I'm not allowing the excellency of the power to be of God. I'm thinking somehow this earthen vessel is going to do the work, and it's not. Are you tired of the flesh winning in your life? Then we need to turn to God in honesty, dependence, submission, patience, and say, God, I just want to be the, the earthen, earthen vessel. You be the power. Are you tired of the devil winning in our society? I am. Some of the things that pass for goodness today, it's, it's, it's insanity. Some of the things that they teach are, that people teach children today, it's insanity. Think, and I, these tropes get uh, overused, I know, but just the, what is drag queen story hour for children in libraries? That is the most bizarrest idea. In, I mean, it just goes beyond imagination. And we're told that that's good. And if you protest, then you're the, you're the enemy. I'm tired of the devil winning our society. You know, the answer is not for us to all get F-15s. Yes, I know I'm, I'm using this. This is our president speaking here. F-15s. Or any other 15s. The answer is to go to God because God is the only one who's going to change our society in a meaningful way. The answer is to go to God and say, God, we, let's be honest, we have, as a nation, we have made fun of you and mocked you and mocked your law and mocked your creation. Read the prayer of Ezra in Ezra chapter 9 or the prayer of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. Both of these men confessed the sins of their nation, even though I don't see that they were personally involved in those sins. But they recognize their, nation's, uh, their nation has forsaken God, has abandoned God, and they go to God and they say, we need your help. That's the answer for the United States. That's the answer for Vacaville and Solano County. That's the answer for my family, for your family. That's the answer for my personal life. So as we go into this series on Sunday mornings where we're going to be talking about some devotional disciplines, we're going to be talking about uh, habits of righteousness that we build into our lives, don't miss that the power, the excellency of the power is of God, not of us. I'm not teaching you ways to, to become spiritually strong so that you don't need God. I'm teaching you ways to clear out the flesh, to clear out self, so that God's power can flow more fully through you. God's power isn't going to, God isn't going to become more powerful through our devotional disciplines. God isn't going to become more powerful as we build in these habits of righteousness. But we will see more of God's power as we say no to sin, no to the flesh. As we deny ourselves and we follow, pick up our cross and we follow Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the folks that you've brought out tonight and, and for your word. We do want the excellency of the power. To be of you. It is. It can't be of us. I, we recognize that. I know some folks here probably think that their place in your economy is very small. We know that the littlest one among us, the weakest one among us, can be an earthen vessel full of the treasure, full of your power. If we'll just be honest and dependent and submitted 
and persevere. Open our eyes to the ministry opportunities we have to persevere in prayer. To persevere in sowing the gospel and being a witness. To persevere in loving our spouse and loving our children and our grandchildren. To persevere in being a light in our community. May we not feel as if what we do doesn't matter. May we understand that each one of us has a race. Each one of us is in a season of life, and you've got a purpose for us. And may we run with patience the race that's set before us. So that you're, you are honored and glorified so that others see it's not the earthen vessel. The excellency of the power is of you. We want our light, really your light, reflected through us to so shine before men. They may see our good works, but glorify you, our Father in heaven. So help us with that. Teach us in these coming weeks the habits of righteousness, the devotional disciplines that will clear self out of our lives and allow your power to flow more freely through us. But teach us that it is our dependence upon you. It's our submission to you. It's our perseverance in faith that enables that power to flow through us. And We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.